Okay, just for a real quick review. Um, David is calling out to God and referring to God as his righteousness. So he's already establishing. Actually, I didn't even talk about this last week, so here I go for the review and probably spend more time in this than maybe I should. But, but it comes up again, so I'll probably... I'll just make mention of it. When he says God of my righteousness, he is recognizing the parameters of his relationship to God. And so I think, I think that's an important thing to understand here in these psalms, particularly because they are prayers, is the recognition of our relationship to God. And and what I mean by that, I'm going to bring this up again in a couple of verses, all right. But I, what I mean by that is that you, you bring it right into the full center of the conversation. I'll give you a very bad example. To, and I already mentioned it during the pregame show. My wife cannot stand it when I sing off-key. Now, there's something about singing. You know, I love singing off-key. I don't know. I do, take me out to the ball game, right? Whenever I, I sing it very loudly and I sing it very off-key. My wife can't stand it when I sing off-key. For some reason, it, I love singing off-key. Don't ask me why. Um, um, I'm reminding of an old, myself of an old pastor who he could only sing off-key uh, and was convinced at one time he should be the worship leader. So you can imagine how much fun that was. But... I know that about her, okay? It's part of our relationship. Mike, when you sing off key, Mary's going to get up a little upset. She's gonna... So when I sing off key, I'm bringing it out full forward, aren't I? Right? Now it becomes part the, right of the here and now relationship. You, you see what I'm getting at? So when we describe God as our righteousness, that is describing the here and now of our relationship. We already know that about him. But now we're, just, we're, we're putting it out in the present. Bringing it into the context of the present tense. So I am, I'm not only thinking about God, my righteousness in the past, but right now at this very moment as I'm praying to you, oh God, my righteousness, hear what I have to say, and I'm bringing all this into the, into the, into the context of the present. Um, reminding him, you've relieved me of my stress, now have mercy on me and hear my prayer. And then he's talking toward the sons of men, who, how long will you turn my glory into shame? And how long will you love worthlessness and seek falsehood? So you've already got a contrast between righteousness of God and the attributes of the sons of men. Because they... Seek falsehood, they love worthlessness. Or whatever else your translation says. I said them backwards, but nonetheless. Um, so he's making a distinction. And I think sometimes... See, to me, prayer is a mystery. All right. Is it biblical to pray for things that we would like to see happen? Of course it is. Is it biblical to pray for healing? Of course it is. Is it biblical to pray for some form of deliverance? Of course it is. Is it biblical to pray for people that they would become Christians, that they would get saved? Of course it is. 
but, but some people act like if I get a thousand people praying, that's a whole lot better than just me. I'm not sure I agree with that because the book of James tells us that Elijah was a man of right. He was a man of righteous. He was a righteous man. And he prayed. Now, he didn't put an email out. But he prayed and God withheld rain for three and a half years. And then he prayed again and God caused it to rain. He didn't send out an email. He didn't send in 25 bucks to some organization that would send him a cloth, right? Uh, a prayer cloth. You ever heard of, you never heard of, I, yeah, I don't, no, they don't get my money. Um, and, and so I, I, I mean, we, we, in other churches, we've been a part of prayer chains, and yes, we ask other people to pray for situations, but the, um, the fervent, effectual prayer of a righteous man avails much. Now, I didn't go look it up, but I'll bet you dollars to donuts, man is singular in that verse. And, and so, God doesn't need a whole lot. He doesn't need a whole army. Um, the ancient world, the entire ancient world had really gone past the point of no return. And then it tells us, Genesis 7, it tells us that who? Noah found favor, grace with God. So, Jonathan understood that when he said to David, who can God can deliver with many or few? So, he's making a distinction here. But he says, but no, this is where we're going to pick up. Okay, fresh material. Uh, finally. But know that the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly. The Lord will hear when I call to him. There's another distinction here between the sons of men who turn David's glory into shame, or now David is the anointed, correct? David is also a type of the anointed, capital A, which is the Messiah, Jesus. He's a type of that. And they tried to turn his glory to shame. Did they not do that to Jesus? I mean, going back to verse 2 just for a second, isn't that kind of a hint? See, the, Hebrew, the Jews would call it that a remits, a hint of what they tried to do to Jesus on the cross and during his trial, during his whole passion. So know that the Lord has set for himself or set apart for himself him who is godly and the Lord will hear when I call him. Now, six million dollar question that just popped into my head. Um, does God set apart the godly or does God set apart those and make them godly? I couldn't remember, so I thought I'd ask. The scripture tells us here in verse 3, know that the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly. Okay, that's what it says. I'm not going to argue with it, right? going to work with it, though. Does God set apart those who are godly, or does God set those apart and then make them godly? 
The Lord has set apart the godly for himself. Which kind of tilts the per- what that means a little bit. Says the same thing? New American? The godly man for himself. Okay, it's a Christian standard. Interesting about that, Brian, is that the Septuagint is consistent more with the Aramaic translation. It says, know that the Lord magnifies his holy one. The Lord will hear me when I cry out to him. Now, which one's right? Nobody answered the first question, so now we've got a second one up there. I feel like someone should start humming the je- or singing the Jeopardy theme. But, okay, I think God, in the context, as we become godly, God affirms, affirms that which he's already doing in us. What did Paul say to the Philippians? He who began a good work, is faithful to complete it, right? Philippians 1. Um, But there seems to be something as we, we allow ourselves to be molded into the image of Christ, as we submit to the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, which is at times incredibly hard to do. That it almost affirms and confirms God's setting us aside, setting us apart. That he's like, yeah, this one's mine. He already knows it. But again, what is it doing here? He's he, he, he bringing the dynamics of the relationship front and center in the presence of this conversation between David and God. Because that's what prayer is. It's a conversation, essentially. What's interesting, too, about this idea of being set apart, it can also, the same Hebrew word can be translated, make a difference. So why is the Aramaic, why the Aramaic and the Septuagint different? I'm not sure. I think part of it is they grabbed a hold of different manuscripts. It's the best explanation I got for you. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that and let it go. Um, but I find that interesting that it's consistent with the Septuagint. Um, I won't get away from it yet. It could be a double meaning. It could also be another remets, a hint at the Messiah, the chosen one, the anointed. Um, remember the Jews believe in the scripture has four different interpretations that are valid. All four of them are valid all the time. There's called the simple, which is, I believe, the Peshat. The simple. Then there is the allegorical. Then there is the remits or the hint where the psalmist or the prophet says something. He's really kind of hinting towards something else. And the fourth one is called the sod, S-O-D in Hebrew, or the secret. And rabbinical Judaism, way back to the time prior to the time of Jesus' ministry on earth, had this 
It's called hermeneutics. They had this structure in place by which they interpreted the Hebrew scriptures. And without giving you examples, we, we do see this in the Gospels coming up from time to time, particularly with Jesus referring to the Old Testament. But he does refer at times to the Old Testament in an allegorical form. In other words, it's something that is a picture that represents something else. In reality, in understanding the Bible, that's what types are all about. They're really allegories. David's whole life is an allegory of the, and a foreshadow of the coming of the Messiah. Because he is a type of, he's not Jesus, but he is a type of Jesus Christ. And that is further reinforced by prophets like Ezekiel and to a lesser degree, Jeremiah, that referred to when David will sit on the throne. I don't think they are talking about David sitting on his throne again. I think they're using the name David, representation of the one greater than David, that is Jesus, who will sit on the throne of David. Because it's, it's end-time prophecy that Ezekiel is, is, is referring to and that uh, Jeremiah is referring to. Um, so... Okay, that's, I'm done with two. But this word set apart could also be translated make a difference. Where it says in verse 3, know that the Lord has set apart for himself he who is godly. Um, it could also be translated, and it is translated in Exodus chapter 9 verse 4. It says the Lord will make a difference the King James uses the word sever, S-E-V-E-R, like when you cut something in two. The Lord will make a difference between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that nothing shall die that belongs to the children of Israel. Um, so God is making this distinction. Now I think God made that distinction in our lives the day we became born again. You could even argue that God made that distinction before the foundation of the world, which I'm not going to get into tonight. But God does make that distinction, and I think he continues to affirm that distinction as we go. Because Peter understood this when he, he talked about our salvation and how he is kept in his introduction, I think it's his first letter, he's kept by the power of God unto salvation. So not only are we saved, but we are being saved, and one day we will be saved. But in, in, in this interim time, we are being kept by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so God is affirming us and affirming that he has set us apart as we stride toward godliness which Peter talked about as well, that uh, he talked about um, to pursue godliness of which no man will what? See the Lord. See, Peter is not a, not, Peter does not read like a once saved, always saved kind of guy. You know, if you re read his, both of his letters, they're, they're, they're troubling. Um, and I think sometimes they should be. Um, and then it says the Lord will hear. The Lord will hear when I call to him. 
Now, I think sometimes, and I, I've, I've talked to a guy, he, he spent close to 30 years in pastoral ministry, and he, you know, he, he's retired now, and he just, and no, I'm not talking about Reverend Bill, um, but he's retired now, and it, he, he just doesn't get prayer, and, and he, he doesn't understand why it should work, and it, it, it's caused him to be more cynical rather than to live in the mystery, which is a tragedy in my, in my understanding, my, th- my thinking of it. But it says the Lord will hear. Now, some people equate hearing with God. Some people equate that God has actually heard them when they get a favorable answer to their request. Is that true? No, it's not true. So it, does it say that here? No, it doesn't. Um, it simply is saying that God hears and he's aware. We need to talk to him. Why? Because this is what I'm thinking. Let's, let's unpack this a little bit. Why do we need to talk to God? It's the relationship. Strength. And to confess it. And I'm not saying in the frame of positive confession now. That's not where I'm going with this. But nonetheless, there's something about it when you do verbalize it, right? Also, it, it is, it, we're commanded. But let, let, let's back off of that just a second. We, we, it's a responding to God's in, invitation. Because if it is true, and I believe it is, Paul believed it. Acts 17, one of my favorite verses, my favorite go-tos, in him we live and we move and we have our being. God then is already aware, is he not? God then has already heard the cry of your heart before you uttered it with your mouth. Or we ask a misc that we might consume it upon our own lust, James tells us again. Or maybe we're asking the wrong question. Yeah, but he always hears us. He always hears us. Now, how many times, again, I've mentioned this a few times in John. Somebody will say something to Jesus. The one that comes to mind right away is in John 3. Uh, Master, we know that you are sent from God because no one can do these works unless God is with him. And Jesus doesn't even respond to that. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a man is born again, he will not enter the kingdom of God. That was his response. Because he really cut to the heart of the matter and in, in, in the heart of Nicodemus. And it appeared that Nicodemus really didn't even understand his own heart. He was still working through some of these things. That's what that whole conversation is you must be born again about. And... and Jesus is bringing him to a place of being able to make a decision to follow Jesus. Therefore, he could experience the new birth. But Nicodemus, he was, you know, he was hungry. But he was on a totally different plane. And, and it's, almost like, it's almost like Jesus had to do some deconstructing before he could reconstruct his understanding of the faith and what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. And what it meant to have a relationship with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
Remember, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Um, so the thing about praying, particularly praying in our distress, and I've already said this once, I told you we're going to come back to this, right? It's a way of putting it out there in front of us and God. Putting it out there in front of us and God. And then the situation becomes full center in our prayer and in our conversation with God. You already know he hears. Obviously, he heard the cry of our heart before we verbalized it, right? But now it's, it's putting it out there and, and allowing... Well, it, it, we see this in verse 3 or verse 8. If I hurry up, we'll get to it. Uh, the light of his countenance to be shined upon it. So, um, the Lord will hear me when I call to him. Now, this is not, uh, well, I'm going to say it anyway. It's not the best statement. But sometimes to me, just knowing that God hears is at least enough for now. It, it may not carry me through from A to Z. But knowing that he hears, really, it, it, there's a comfort to that. The fact that he listens to you, that speaks of relationship, that speaks of awareness, that speaks of the fact that he knows you. Before you were in your mother's womb, I chose you, Jeremiah. Right? And, and so there, he, he's really tapping into the fact that he has a relationship with God here. And then he says to be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. Now some of the translations say tremble. I think no American standard I think said tremble. Tremble. Silent. Cindy, you want to weigh in on the ESV? Verse, uh, what? Be silent. Be silent. Septuagint, be angry. Now, this is quoted in the New Testament, is it not? Let's turn real fast. I'll use my ESV to turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26. Paul takes this and he kind of runs with it a little bit. If you're there, go ahead and read Ephesians 4, 26. Might as well do 27 for us too. Okay, thanks Bill. So Paul kind of expands what David is talking about here in Psalm 4. Where he says, do be angry and do not sin. And then he says, do not let the sun go down upon your wrath. They're two separate words, by the way. Anger and wrath. Uh, they're similar. Um, Probably not the best explanation for the, the distinguishing between the two, but it uses the pre prefix uh, para for the word wrath, which in some respects, maybe this is a bit of an exaggeration, but it's almost talking about anger on steroids. Okay, that anger when you're really angry as opposed to just being angry. So be angry, but don't sin, but don't, 
let the sun go down upon your anger on steroids. Because a lot of people don't realize this about themselves. But anger is compounding. And it gets out of control very easily. And that's why he tells us, verse 27, give no opportunity for the devil. Because the devil will use your anger and use it to cause you to sin. David here tells us to be angry and uh, do not sin. Meditate within your heart. Notice meditate within your heart. What does that mean? Think about it, yeah. Or the Septuagint, for what you say in your heart. NIV says, in your heart. What about it? Meditate. Search your heart and be silent. CSB. Okay. Might as well go New American Standard. Go ahead. Or you have something to say. Could you read the verse for me, then say whatever you like? How's that? Please. Okay, should we do a show of hands? I don't know. Are you the only one who sings silently in your head, praising the Lord with songs? At night. At night. Do you go to sleep to that? What a wonderful way to go to sleep. Right, but still, what a wonderful way to go to sleep. No, I don't think you are the only one. Um, I would say, if you haven't done it, try it. <laughs> oh, I knew that was coming from you. All right. <laughs> then sings by. Anyway. Um, uh, well, well, some of them are. Some of them are. Some of them are, anyway. But I, let's try this for fun. Because I like what you're doing. But let's, to stay within the context of this passage, you ever been silent before God? Have you ever been silent before God? Somebody said they couldn't hear me, so I, that was, I wasn't trying to, sorry, Carol. It was the guy right behind you, okay? That guy, yeah. So, no, I wasn't picking on you. But have you tried to be silent before God? Is it hard to be silent before God? I think it's very hard to be silent before God. I don't know if blank is possible. In other words, absolutely flatline, no, no thinking. But can you quiet yourself? Because even, Bill says he can't. When I did, well, I have that too. But when I did my doctorate, we did residencies in Cannon Beach and the first week I was there I hardly slept because we were close to the ocean and the ocean kept me up all night. 
all those breakers uh, because where we live is very quiet. I imagine most of you where you live is very quiet. In fact, it's so quiet, I can hear B yelling at Ken almost every... No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Actually, Ken and B live across the highway from, from us, but uh, we're back quite a ways from the highway. But anyway, um, I think it's also something that you have to work at because I get the ring in my ears too, right? Um, but try to just... And, and so... I don't try for the total flat line. But I just try to just be still and know that he is God. And just kind of listen for it. And is your mind going to wander? Yeah, sometimes it does. You know, and sometimes I, I use a word to bring myself into, back into that quietness. Usually I use faith, hope, or love. And that kind of draws me back in to that what, what I believe David is talking about here, um, this idea of being still, being silent, is given to us seven times in the Psalms. I thought it was more, actually. Um, Psalm 62, verse 5, My soul waits silently for God alone, for my expectation is from him. What does it mean to have a silent soul? Is that different than a silent mind? I think it is. I think perhaps when you're singing songs in your head at night, that is a quieting of the soul, a silencing of the soul. Because I don't know, the, the, the dead complete flatline thing. You know, I've seen a few of these commercials where they play this noise. You know, listen to this, and in seven minutes you're going to be asleep. Um, I don't know, sometimes I, I mean, I, I do it, I plug into my earphones and I listen to a uh, nightly devotion being read. It's like an evening prayer where they read several verses and, uh, and I can feel myself just kind of drifting off. No, I think you're, I think you're dead on. As it, because silence requires awareness. The best sermon I heard on Easter Sunday um, during the pandemic. Remember, we were not meeting on Easter Sunday during the pandemic. The best sermon that I heard on Easter Sunday was, <laughs> Mary was mad because I didn't wake her up. Um, I wanted her to sleep. I went out and watched the sunrise. I didn't watch anybody online after that. I didn't need to. Then I read the book of Lamentations. I think what yoga does is it's a... Yeah, which is almost next to impossible. I think they're, without realizing it, they've taken what, we read, what we're reading about here in Scripture and, 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 and um, really... Sec culturalizing it and secularizing it to their own understanding. Um, because if all, all truth is God's truth, and if it's true, it's of God, and if it's not true, then it's not of God, then anything that resembles truth, but maybe not quite completely true, is taken from the truth of God, I believe. Because I believe all truth, what is true, is God. 
because the, the character of God, one of the, his attributes is that he is a true God and everything about him is true. He's faithful and true and he is just. And the, part of the problem is that we as people have a partial understanding of him. But there's also, see I'm not always sure what to do with people outside of, particularly in the ancient times, people outside of Israel, but I do believe in a common grace and I believe in a common revelation of the Spirit of God. And that God will seek out and find those who desire to know him. Even if it's through, well I mean, some of you guys saw that Jesus Revolution movie. Maybe nobody saw it. The guy who was, um, I'm pretty sure that the guy who was one of the main characters in that movie became a Christian while he was frying on acid. So I'm almost positive he, that was his story. Um, which is strange. But God can cut through all that. He was also a, a practicing bisexual. Which is stranger to me. Um, and he knew it was wrong. He wasn't one of those who was trying to affirm his, his sin. Uh, that's why he got never, well, I won't go into his story. Name, Lonnie Frisbee is the one, if, if you saw the movie. But um, but the thing is, it is a grace that is greater, here's a hymn for you, than all our sin. Which is what, I, I try to do that most every night in, in some way, shape, or form, and then all of a sudden, the next thing I know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm asleep. I go to sleep pretty er easily, don't I? Um, Can you think of a better way to fall I can't think of a better way to fall asleep. Yeah. Or just to be aware of his presence. Um, I would say a few nights a week, uh, Reverend Bill, I probably fall asleep in the middle of a prayer of some way, shape, or form. But some of those, some of those big ones that I know I just got to get in, you know what I mean? We all have those. those I lead off with those. And, um, but he, he's, he's calling, the psalmist is calling us to meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. And so, I'm big on the word of God. I'm big on studying the Bible. You guys know that about me. What else do I teach here? Okay. But I also, in reading this, you know, emptying, emptying your mind of the things of the day. That was what you were saying, right, Reverend? Set them aside and think on the things of God. And as we're going into a time of getting of your body slowing down, it becomes a little less cognitive, there's a little less cognition going on. You following me? A little less way thinking, and there's a little bit more of, I'm being still, and I know that you're there. I know that you're here. I know that you hear me. I know that you're aware of me. I'm aware of your presence. I thank God that you're here, and I thank you for being my Lord. And the lights go out. Upon my bed. Yeah. And uh, so I never get to him. Or songs. Although, with me, 90s vineyard music and there's nothing better, okay? <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> but that, that stuff plays in my head all the time. Um, yeah, I wish, I wish, 
you guys would probably stone me, but I would, for worship, that's all I would rather do is just 90s. I, I just think that, that God did something with those group of people that I did not agree with them all theologically all the time, but God did something with them and their worship and their ability to write worship songs that I've never, it, it just speaks to me. How's that? So I won't put too much of a value on it other than that. So, um, We got three more verses, but it's we're out of time because, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not, somebody already told me that I went over last, two weeks ago. She's writing these things down. Um, yeah, they can. Oh, well, I understand that. Okay, but, but explanation, all right, an explanation is in order, Okay. When we first started here about 20 years ago, we had people who owned businesses and they opened, you know, it was a tourist town. So they wanted to get to their business and have them open by noon so they could take all that tourist money. So I was, I was making sure I got them out of here by no later than 1130. And that was when I did a 90-minute sermon. I can't do a 90-minute. Anyway, I'm older. Okay. Uh, but yes... Of course, then you know what it is, the question too, what, is it, what does it mean when a pastor looks at his watch? Absolutely nothing. Um, okay, so we got through two more verses. Y'all did well.